Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and CEO of Mind Buddy Green, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the Mind Buddy Green podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome Larea Gaston to the MBG podcast. She's the founder of Lunch on Me, a Los Angeles-based organization dedicated to helping the homeless. The seed for Lunch on Me was planted after Larea realized the healing power of simply giving a sandwich to someone in need. And now Lunch on Me serves organic food to 10,000 people on Skid Row each month. But for Lunch on Me and Larea, it's not just about the food. They also offer healing in the form of yoga, meditation, crystals, Reiki, and most importantly, love. Larea is truly shifting the conversation around homelessness, asking us to question what we think we believe, and inspiring each of us to be part of the solution. A note to our listeners, we have some construction happening above us, so if you hear some sounds, we apologize in advance for the distraction. Larea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to see you guys on the East Coast. It's nice. <laughs> Lorraine, you do work that most people can't even imagine. Can you tell us a little bit about Lunch on Me and the work that you do on Skid Row? Yes. Um, Lunch on Me is an organization that offers organic food and holistic healing for the foster youth and homeless in Los Angeles. Um, It's a lot of energetic work. It's a lot of dedication and sacrifice um, because we've been so focused on consistency and we're a grassroots organization, so that makes it a lot of juggling at once and still being able to show up and make sure that we're in the people's lives that we service. And um, it's really about access, giving people access to their own healing. So Larray, on the Revitalized stage in 2018, you shared some pretty shocking statistics about homelessness. Can you talk about some of those now and how those might have changed? Yes. um, For 2018, um, one of the big issues that I think goes unlooked is foster care systems. We have 28,000 kids in L.A. that are in foster care, and out of 28,000, only 1,400 are awaiting adoption. And 50% of those kids, which would be 14,000, will be homeless within six months of aging out of the system at 18. So that's a huge amount, 1,400 with 28,000. That's That's unbelievable. Yeah, so one, one of our biggest issues is foster care. So when you look at the issues of homelessness, what are you seeing? What do you see? Um, I see a lot of displacement. I see a lot of people who do not have support. They didn't, they weren't raised in support. And I think a lot of people don't consider if you are a foster child, you are taken out of a family and you do not have a family. When you are being fostered, that's not the same as adopted. Adopted is when someone takes you in and takes care of you. Foster is people are being paid to house you, you're still displaced. And it's only till you're 18, you know, it's it's a, a, mm-hmm. a time, a ticking time for those kids. And a lot of times you deal with a lot of neglect. 
only 3% of foster kids even go to college. And to me, for it to be that low of a percentage of people that even get past high school, that lets me know there's neglect, that they are not being taken care of, they are not um, being mentored and guided. So you're dealing with children having to make adult decisions with no help and no guidance. And of course, where, where would any of us end up without being shown the way? And what happens when they turn 18? 18, government stops funding the foster family and they're left on their own. A lot of these kids don't even have bank accounts, you know, or job experience or just getting out of high school. Mm -hmm. So, and that doesn't even go into what they've experienced in foster care because, I mean, you deal with statistics of girls. 70% of girls are pregnant before they're 21. And that shows you, I mean, 70% is a huge number of girls at 21 where it's showing that they're looking for love in different places and it's at alarming numbers and it affects them. And so looking at things like that, looking at the amount of abuse that happens in foster care, it's like not only are these kids dealing with displacement, lack of guidance, but they are also not, they're they're being mistreated. They're being abused. So there's trauma that's being built Mm -hmm. on top of this. So there's all these different layers and none of it's being addressed. You know, people look at someone homeless and they think it's their decisions that they made and not that the system has failed us. And what are you providing? What are you going down to Skid Row and and providing? Of course, there's, let's start with the food. Let's talk about the food that you're bringing. Well, the food is amazing because we make it with so much love. Um, We focus on organic food. That's been my biggest thing is like, I love healthy organic eating and I wanted to make sure everyone had access to that because I've realized like people can't afford the average person can't afford to shop at Whole Foods. Yeah. And that's the God to honest truth. So me um, wanting to provide that for people, I felt like it was an act of love that was tangible, physical, and it, it's something that could happen instantly. It, it doesn't take a million days. It just takes one meal to show someone that they're loved. And I feel like who doesn't feel loved when they're nourished? That was the first step. Next to me, food became a tool to create a relationship and a bond and consistency with people in such a vulnerable um, neighborhood demographic. And how are you providing the food? Where were you getting it from? Where? What time of day were you delivering it? Oh, my God. So when I first started, um, I was just buying food. And that's something I had done for 10 years. I had always, that was my form of, I call it spiritual tidying, um, that I would always just buy food for anyone that I would seen that was homeless outside of a grocery store in front of a restaurant I'm going to. And then when I decided to start Lunch on Me, our first event, we fed vegan pizza and cold-pressed juice. We had fed 500 people. And that was not really knowing how to go about like creating this organization. I just knew how to feed people and love people. And that's when it first started. And I started creating monthly Love Without Reason block parties. And that's when we would all just get together and distribute food that we bought. Going into it, I started looking at, okay, well, what does food waste look like? That's big for me. Like, I've always been focused on, like, I do not waste food. And so <laughs> I was like, well, how how can I approach other companies? I knew what the restaurant industry looked like, what would, all, what would happen. And so I started creating models that would distribute waste and create nourishing meals. There was so much food that goes uneaten. Um, 40% of food in America never even hits a table. When you look at food banks, you always see that they focus on non-perishables. And I was like, but wait, what's happening with all the healthy food? Mm -hmm. Because that's being wasted just as much. And that's what my focus was. Let me 
create programs where I would make it easy for people. In the first um, grocery store I worked with, Lassen's um, in Los Angeles, and they're still owned by the Lassen family. And they're like a little baby Whole Foods. Like it's super <laughs> small, but they you know, took a chance on me. When I was getting food from them, in order to get the food, I would have to collect it at 11.30 at night. So during that time, six days a week, I was distributing food from midnight to two in the morning. And I did that for a year. And so every night, six nights a week, and it's only Sunday was our only day off because Lassen's was closed that day, <laughs> we were distributing food. And wow. that's kind of when it started, my whole zero waste. And to uh-huh. see the amount of food and to see And this is food that otherwise, otherwise would have just been thrown away. Yes, I'm talking about everything from their delis, hot bar. They make food and toss it every four hours. Wow, so, so this it, is all fresh food. All fresh food, all made same day. Like mm-hmm. it was just insane and then I started collecting like holiday food right so when holidays would come up there'd be stuff that's like pumpkin or cranberry they would pull everything from the shelves and I didn't realize how much food is wasted just off of that like seasonal consuming and so that's when I started saying okay we have to bring in chefs so that we can create meals that are nourishing with the food that we're the excess food that's not cooked Mm-hmm. And that's how that came to be where I started telling chefs like, okay, how do, what, do, what do I do with this? What do, how do, there's so many different random things that were bought or mispicks when you have cans of pumpkins and cranberry. How Just do you make random that things. Meal? Yes. And it was really cool because it, it kind of created a creative process. And then I'm also bringing food into a community that is not used to healthy food at all. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone is on food stamps, they're only being provided by the government $3 a day. That's the average. So what can you buy for $3? And so they weren't used to, they were just used to eating top ramen, you know, just Mm -hmm. processed foods. So it was really cool and it was a a great introduction because I was able to bring something different and then teach wellness and health. And Mm -hmm. they were able to see the difference because if you've never had real food, you don't know what your body feels like when it's um, functioning at optimal levels. Mm -hmm. So that even changed where they're like, oh, I feel better. So it wasn't just like us coming in our presence, but they actually physically felt better with the food we were giving them. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it started. And then other relationships came like BuzzFeed. I also um, get like corporate catered lunches, craft services, mm-hmm. um, just all these different weddings, bar mitzvahs, like all these different <laughs> events right. where people just started contacting us. Mm-hmm. And I started saying, big or small, like let's let's make sure nothing goes uneaten. There's mm-hmm. someone that can benefit from that. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started. And then I started creating a pantry because the amount of food I was getting. Once, once Whole Foods came aboard, it turned into a whole nother level. Within a year and a half, I went from feeding 500 meals a month to 10,000. It happened so quickly. Wow. The amount How of food I was given. That? I mean, I just, I didn't even know what I was going to do. I just, I had to take it one day at a time. Yeah. And at first it was very inconsistent where it was like, okay, one day I'm, we're distributing a thousand meals. How are we doing this? And then another day it's like 300. I got to a place where I'm like, okay, we can, 400 meals a day is what I want to distribute every single day. That's like max. And that's how I scaled it to figure out like, okay, we're doing 10,000 meals a month. 400's a max. And then I was able to start saving things and organizing what we would make for the following day and figuring out what days we would have surplus and what days things would need to be cooked by chefs and what days things would be provided from craft services and catering companies. 
it's a whole like it's crazy organizational. It's a crazy operation yeah. how we have to manage so much food, but mm-hmm. it's really cool. It's it's really great to to be able to do that and then to show up with organic food for people in need and to help combat their health issues. Like it's just it's great that I can give out cold pressed juices. I'm working with Health Aid right now and they're giving us 7,000 kombuchas mm-hmm. this week to distribute. So we're able to give everyone on Skid Row. Like, wow. When you think about the price of a kombucha, that's $5 mm-hmm. for someone who's living off $3 a day yeah. food. It's like it, it looks like nothing to someone else. But for them, that translates as love because we're providing for them. And so it's really cool. I love it. I think it's amazing that we're able to help so many people. And I feel like it's it's mending so many hurt, disappointed, broken hearts. Well, I know that you've said that food is really just the tip of the iceberg. Yes, it's a tool. And it's really the way in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah. So food was our consistency because you're dealing with Skid Row. They're not always the most open embraced people because they have been hurt. And their pain is valid. You know, I think that they do an incredible job with just what they've been through and how they are still allowing us in. Mm-hmm. And um, it started with food, and I realized after a while I was really creating bonds and trust with people. They were looking forward to us. The consistency was healing, and it was we were creating a family that we didn't know we were making because we were just showing up for food, but it meant so much more to them than um, we had ever imagined. And so it got to the point where we started to learn people's stories. And when I started to get into all of the trauma, all the things that people had experienced, I the first thing I thought was, well, how did I find my healing? How did I become grounded? And it was through holistic healing. Mm-hmm. It was through breath work, Reiki, yoga. And I just, I thought to myself, why not provide that as well? This is now family to us. Why not suggest, <laughs> hey, you've been through you know this. Let's sit. Let let's sit and let's be like let, let's sit in this and and create space. And that's been the biggest thing for me, outside of bringing these different programs. It's creating a space for people to heal themselves and feel empowered. Mm-hmm. And that is what allowed me to get through all the ups and downs in my life. Was when my mom was creating space for me, and now we're creating spaces for people to be and to grow and to heal. And because they're so resilient and 10 times stronger than I could ever be, they're going to get to places that will surpass me. I just have to give them a little bit. I only have to give them a fraction of what I have, and they'll take that and run, and that's what it's been. Mm-hmm. Now they're so much stronger, resilient, that these these moments, I feel like it's like the concept of like a mustard seed of hope, because mm-hmm. giving them that, they just they cling to it. And now they're, they've embraced all of the healing, and they see the difference. And I can see collectively a shift in the people, just even how they interact with each other, because it is a intense environment mm-hmm. to to live in. It, mm-hmm. It's hard. And to see that you can bring kindness and community and bring even the people within that community together in a different way, mm-hmm. because they're healing together. And it's it's forms relationships and bonds. And really, that's what we all just want is a, a, a relationship, a support system. So I feel like we're creating spaces and that's allowing support systems to happen and for people to grow past their own pain. And it's it's working and it's kind of magical. <laughs> it's like really magical. <laughs> 
One of my favorite things about talking to you is that you always tell me stories about the people on Skid Row, that you really bring their stories um, to life. And one of the people that we talked about um, before you came to Revitalize in 2018 was Kevin. Yes. Um, and a, a man that you worked with. Yes. Um, and then you told me his story, and you told his story on stage at Revitalize. And um, Kevin actually came to Revitalize. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about him and tell us how he's doing now? Yes. Um, so Kevin is a guy that I used to feed on Skid Row. And when I was doing our midnight two, th- two in the morning drive-bys, we called them the food drive-bys because we would drive by tents and hand them out. And he was a man that I had seen um, on Skid Row, super quiet. I was re- really drawn to him. And he went away after consistently feeding him for a year out of nowhere. Hadn't seen him for another year. Shows back up, but he shows up to volunteer. Cleaned up, off the streets, just a completely different person. Um, became a chef, and now um, he he's a chef, and he's becoming he's moving up the ladder in his job, which I'm really proud of. Um, the most amazing thing that happened was during Christmas, he hosted his own feeding, oh, and wow. that was like huge. And that was that was that was amazing because not only did we plant a seed, but there was there's also empowerment, and we created a blueprint to show people the way to do the same thing that we're doing. Mm-hmm. So it was amazing to see someone completely turn their life around and now are serving. Not only just turn their life around and leave, mm-hmm. but go back and be of service. And he did that for Christmas because um, Christmas and Thanksgiving, we don't do events because it's the two times a year that people show up. And he decided to host one. And it was just like amazing to see our volunteers there serving for Kevin's um, serving dinner. And so he's doing great and I'm so like happy that he's carrying that seed as well. It's just, I, I can imagine what will happen just a year from now, the domino effect and how many more people will show up and do this work. So it's nice, he's definitely doing his part. I remember one of the things he said was that um, you gave him love when he couldn't love himself and that that led to that incredible transformation. What do you think some of the biggest misconceptions people have about the homeless are? What do you wish that everyone could just tell everyone and that they would understand? Well, the first thing I would wish it would be to remind everyone it's not a good thing to assume. If you haven't sat and had dinner with someone that's walked that walk, then don't even assume. Go into a space with an open mind so that you can receive the truth through the people because the narratives I hear. Um, A lot of times, often, I hear that people want to be homeless. And that's very hard to hear when you see the conditions you see. It's hard to hear that someone's displaced, goes without food and love, and that's what they chose. And to hear that from people who can support and help, it seems very judgmental to me. And I don't think it's it's of light. I don't think it's assists the problem. I know. I think that it it creates a band-aid for people who aren't helping and it makes them feel like them not helping is valid because this person made this decision. Mm-hmm. And that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to, one, be open in spaces that we know nothing about and to accept our ignorance in them so that we can receive the truth. And I would love for people to speak and say hello with someone who is homeless because it's it's obvious. It's not something that we can hide. When someone 
isn't taken care of and loved, you can see it mm-hmm. in the upkeep, the maintenance. They're just even in their body language, you know. And so I, I wish more people would speak and say hello and put themselves in a space to have a direct experience instead of forming an opinion based off of another's opinion or something they'd seen in a movie. Like I always tell people, go into those spaces, have an experience, move out of your comfort zone because you're missing out on some of the most incredible dynamics that you could ever have. Mm -hmm. And I would love for people to everyone, everyone, if everyone could just go up to one person and offer them lunch, that would, I mean, that would shift so much. And I hear so often from people that I tried to do something and it was rejected mm-hmm. or I was yelled at or yeah. someone threw something at me. Mm-hmm. or And I think that those kind of experiences are the ones that then turn people off to mm-hmm. ever, that shuts people down and yes. they say, well, forget it. I, I tried to put myself out there. I tried and it didn't work. What would you say there? Well, for one, I would say expand your capacity so that you don't shift your efforts by one experience. So expand. That's important. Um, Second, I would say before we decide why someone did something, let's hold accountability of the energy we brought into the situation. Because sometimes when people offer their help, there's this elitist concept. And I always feel like charity is a dirty word because we create this idea that we're above someone and we're giving them something and they should be grateful. Mm-hmm. So we have to abandon those concepts because they haven't worked for 100 years. <laughs> it's gotten worse and worse from that, and we've seen that continuously happen. I've seen it even within volunteering where I tell people, if you think you're better than the person that you're serving, then make you aren't qualified to serve or be of service. You cannot be used if you're in that space. Yeah. So we have to hold that accountability. And then also understand all of us in life have rejected love because of our own pain. Remove yourself. It's not about you. Some people have never had something good happen for them, so they take a little more time to be open. And you try again, but also like we have to be aware of our approach because a lot of times people do, they'll give someone their leftovers and say, you should be grateful for this. It's like, all right, this is a little, this is judgmental. Like we have to be in a space where saying hello to begin with, you know, you're not saving anyone. And that's the biggest mm-hmm. issue is people think when they're doing something good, they're saving someone. You're not saving anyone. If you're going to be of service, hold space for that person. See them. Look them in the eyes and be respectful and, and recognize that they're going through something. And create patience. Like, that's important as well. So anyone that's had that type of experience, the first thing I always think is, what did you bring to that environment? Because I haven't had, I've been doing this for 15 years, and I can count only on one hand. And the people I've had experiences that weren't as pleasant. There were psych meds involved. There were things that had nothing to do with the person. I've mm-hmm. never had someone that was just sober and fine mistreat me. Life has, had, they're the most humble beings you'll find on this planet. Mm-hmm. Life has brought them to a space that a lot of us won't even reach if we tried. And so if I hear that, I really, I question the person that felt they were a savior. Can you tell us a little bit about shelters. I know that a lot of people say, well, why aren't why aren't people just in shelters? We have these shelters. Why don't they just go to that? And I know that you've um, shed some light on what that experience is really like. Can you talk a little bit about what the shelter system looks like? Why people might not be running off to shelter every night? Um, well, shelters are horrible. I experienced them from staying on Skid Row. Shelters are terrible because the people are mistreated. It, it, it feels like animal shelters. Like when I say that, it's just, it, it feels like they... There's no love there, and you can tell that people are there to collect a check, right? There's a lot of people in a lot of different industries that do not like their job. 
that job is difficult. I would tell anyone, if it's not in your heart, you're not of service. <laughs> like <laughs> you find another job because you're dealing with so many different types of people and there's no empathy there. So they don't realize, I think sometimes we become numb to our jobs, right? If you get in the medical field, you can become numb to loss. You can become numb to things and we have to reset. That's very important that we reset our empathy because you see it in the shelters where people are considered numbers and no one's seen that this person is literally sleeping in a room full of a hundred strangers. You know, there's no, there, there, nothing, there's nothing there that's nourishing, that's loving, and people are treating you like it's just their job and that's all that matters. So that's a hard place to be in. A lot of people rather have the freedom because there's so many rules. There's so many things you have to do. And it's very dangerous in shelters because a lot of shelters, there aren't background checks. There aren't. So you have someone that could be a criminal. Criminal and homelessness are two different things. Mm-hmm. And you have someone that could be a criminal. Then you have a mom who lost her job and was evicted. They shouldn't be in the same shelter. We've created this idea that all homelessness is one thing, right? You And it's not. It's, it's a circumstance, right? Without a home, whatever that is, whether you're a single mom, you lost your job, and you couldn't pay your rent, especially in L.A., then you have someone who might have been mentally ill that actually has a condition that has not been treated and that person ends up homeless. Then you have a foster kid who's never had family and he's homeless. And then you have someone that did leave jail and who knows why they left jail, but all these different types of people in different walks of life. And then you put them all in one room. You know, there's so many different narratives and stories. You have people that are homeless because their spouse passed away. Cancer is a big thing. You hear that a lot where where I've had guys who have lost their wives and they said, I, there was nothing else to work for. I don't want to do anything. I just, they, they gave up in their life because the one thing, their world is gone. So you have all these different walks of life or people who have cancer and they don't want to work anymore. They're like, I'm over it. I'm done. You know, I'm going to die anyway. Like there's all these different narratives and then you put everyone in a box. The shelter isn't going to solve the problem. This problem isn't solved with a box. These people don't have homes. They don't have a place of refuge, a, a consistency, love, safety, of course you'd rather be on your own because you already know what that looks like. That's not going to solve. And then people there don't treat you with love and compassion. Mm-hmm. Why would you put yourself in that space? So you recently spent 43 days living on Skid Row. Yes. Putting yourself actually in the same position of all the people that you've been helping. With no money. All Ugh, these years. Nothing. Yeah. No, like no access to anything. Like I had to figure it out with them. Tell us about that. What? Uh, what was the first hour like? Well, I think the most interesting part was I lived two miles from Skid Row, and it kind of shows you like the divide, right? I lived two miles from Skid Row, and I walked from my place. And just that, just to watch like the change that's walking distance, mm-hmm. that to me psychologically put me in a space where I was like, first of all, I only live two miles from a homeless tent city, like encampment. Third world country conditions is two miles from me. And so that was the first thing I thought as I was walking was, what is this? This is so foreign to me and so familiar at the same time, but it's a whole different thing. Even when you drive by, it's different than when you are outside serving. It's Mm -hmm. like a completely different energy. The, The first thing I had thought was, okay, I'm here. I'm so busy. I'm always busy. I'm always working. 
the first hour was just being like I got there and I went to set up my tent. Right. So even that, like even with having nothing, there was still privilege because I was able to buy a brand new tent. You know what I mean? Certain things, mm-hmm. even though I went there with no money, I had nothing else. I had one outfit. I wore mm-hmm. the same thing for 43 days. And um, going there, setting up my tent, and I set up my tent next to Miss Brenda, which is like one of my favorite people in Skid Row. I stayed with her the 43 days. Um, it was interesting because it was like, that's your home. Like, it's just, you think mm-hmm. about that, like, this is your home. And then I had nothing. All I had was yoga mats. Mm-hmm. And I put, like, a couple yoga mats in my tent. And even that first night, like, I don't, how many people have slept on the concrete floor? Like, that's a whole nother, I'm sorry, my wood floors are not as hard <laughs> as what I felt on the concrete. And I had thick yoga mat thinking that was going to help me. And the first night, it was interesting because two, three, four, five, six, seven in the morning, it never stopped. Three and four, around four in the morning is the most active time. Hmm. There's more people out than at noon. And it's because shelters release people. So people don't even get to sleep the whole night. You're released at five, six in the morning. Mm -hmm. So they're treated like cattle. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen because they're all like, okay, wake up. Everyone has to go now. And it's like, that's not even a full night's rest. Like, they all have to be up at 6 in the morning and out. Mm -hmm. So that was shocking to me, to, like, close my eyes, and then I'm hearing people in the streets at that time. Because that's not the time I usually go to Skid Row. Like, we would usually leave around 2 in the morning. Right. So that was was the most interesting part, that I'm hearing full conversations. Mm -hmm. And you feel vulnerable because you're in a tent, and, like, there's five people right around your tent, like, talking right on the sidewalk in the street because everyone's sharing space. So that was really like an interesting part for me was the first night and rats. But like I'm used to rats in New York. I'm not used to rats in L.A. That's a different thing. But like my first night, a rat tried to go into my tent. Oh, man. And I was like, oh, no. Like I felt like I'm like my first camping experience is Skid Row. It's not like in the woods. It's not. It's literally <laughs> it was my first time camping. So that was like it was such a shift in so many different ways. One was I'm so used to my spiritual meditation routines, my disciplines, like how I do things, and all of it was disrupted Mm -hmm. because I couldn't find peace. And I'm pretty good with finding peace even in chaos. This vibration was beyond me, the amount of just activity. Mm -hmm. And it was shocking because I became so acclimated so quick. That part was disturbing to me because within the first week, there were only maybe two or three times I had to physically leave Skid Row. And that was for like wellness events. I would mm-hmm. have to leave for a couple hours to do an event, and I was completely Whoa. gone. That idea, though, of going from world to world, that must have been I, intense. I was at Maricada Sagato um, in Malibu at a retreat, uh, speaking on a panel. I was shaking. For one, I had probably been 20-something days, maybe 25 days into Skid Row. Had to go there, go from all the sounds of 25 days to complete silence in the middle of like the Malibu Hills with no sounds. And people, I'm on a panel and it's silent. And I'm like shaking because I... I could hear my own heartbeat because I was so used to sounds Mm -hmm. that I was just like, I'm so sorry. Like vibrationally, I'm like, guys, I cannot ground myself right now. Like, I am so sorry. I'm shaking. There's nothing I can do. But vibrationally, I just did a shift that I can't even physically explain to people. And I had seen it in in people who were on Skid Row because we take them off of Skid Row too, right? Like we take people bowling. We go to restaurants. We celebrate birthdays. And I've seen people act uneasy. And I didn't get it before. Mm -hmm. Like I used to be like, oh, maybe it's because they feel how people are looking at them or certain things like that. 
And that felt magnified for me. You know, like I literally, I changed my clothes from being on Skid Row, but it was, I mean, the maintenance. I still, I looked a little crazy, <laughs> but I was, I was in the middle of something and I could even feel a difference. I felt like uncomfortable. I got so acclimated to being in that space with those people that I felt displaced in the wellness world. I felt displaced on this panel. Mm -hmm. and But it was interesting because I also felt magnified in what love looked like. So even on that panel, I was listening to people and I felt like so many things were missing energetically. Like the experience I was having, even in that moment, I felt like people needed to shift and change because it even steepened my understanding and how I can be of more assistance because of my experience. Mm -hmm. And being more empathetic to even the idea of, wow, they must love and trust us to get out of their comfort zone, to spend time with us, because it's hard. It was so hard. And I was doing things like, on Skid Row, there aren't really rules, right? Not like the normal rules, like you cross the street diagonal, like certain things happen. And I started doing that like when I got back home. <laughs> and my friends were like, you know you can't just do that. And I'm like, I didn't think, I just, I was so acclimated so quick. And even like my schedule of eating and we were walking maybe 10 miles a day at least. Everything was on foot and everyone was teaching us different things. Like if you need to, you know, get water or coffee or a pair of socks, like these are different places you go. So I was going to all these different shelters, getting things. And even how people like looked at me, treated me, it was it was insane. So first of all, how did the people on Skid Row react to you? They were excited. So I had told them, I was like, I'm, I explained to them, I'm going to come, I'm going to stay with you guys, we're going to film, and I want you to walk through, like, I want to understand, like, what your days look like. How, how does that work? How does that happen? And they were really excited. Miss Brenda had cleaned, like, three days before. She had swept, like, my area where my tent was going to be, like, days before. <laughs> and she was, like, even telling people to move their tents down. <laughs> so it was really funny. I just felt, I felt like a guest in their home. And it, was, it, was, and it felt like a, a month and a half slumber party <laughs> because I got to spend, like, intimate time with so many people that... I feed, and it's a different dynamic when I show up. And that was the thing, too. I learned the importance of us because while I was down there, I um, I ate the food that was served at other places. So I threw up every other day. It was so bad. Like, I got so sick because I was experiencing everything that they were. And then when we came down, like, when I would see our team, I understood why why they're so happy. I was like, oh, my God, I get a salad today. Like, I just thought to myself, I got, because I was eating such crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. I hadn't had meat since I was 19, and I had a burger because that's what was served that day. I was just throwing, I was just, I, I low key tortured myself thinking about what they go through and just their health yeah. and the stuff that was served. I was just like, this, how can you eat this every day? How can you, you know, I felt a difference even in my body having to do that. And then, like, I looked, I looked a little rough, like mm -hmm. having to eat like that, not feel nourished and then still have so much to do because there's street sweeping days where we have to take our tent down, move it to another street. Then you have like LAPD and um, city sanitation coming, harassing you. It's like three, four, five in the morning and they're coming yelling at us, get your tents. And I'm like, do you guys have to talk to us that way? Like it was just, it was crazy to see how they're treated. It was just like, that part was heartbreaking. I cried every day. Mm -hmm. Every day I cried. And then especially when it got to the point, maybe after a week, where I was blending in. The first week, I looked okay. Yeah. Second week, I was acclimated. No one, I was no different. Mm 
And in that moment, I started to see the treatment. Even when I had went just a block off of Skid Row, I had a woman call the cops on me. I went into her store because I was like looking at frames, forgetting like my, I just wasn't thinking about my whole situation as a whole. Mm-hmm. I was just being me. And it was the first time this woman called the cops, what are you doing in my store? And all I could say was, I'm looking at frames. Like I was confused because I'm like, wait, like I'm just going to the store to look at a frame that I would like to buy. But then um, the guy that was with me that was filming, his name is Nima, he was like, she she thinks you're homeless and she's treating you this way because you can't afford anything in her store. Mm-hmm. And then she called the cops on me to leave. And like that hurt my feelings. And Miss Brenda was outside the store, and I didn't realize like she didn't walk in the store. She's like, the lady thought you were gonna steal or something. And I was just like, what? And I had to explain to her she was so acclimated and used to being mistreated. She was like, yeah, she thinks that. So let's just not go in her store. And I'm like, no, this isn't right. Like no one should be treated this way. But they were so used to it that it was like okay. Mm-hmm. And even that's like heartbreaking too to be treated that way. And then you're still being forgiving to the person that's like being you know rude to you or it was it was interesting because i watched how people and their everyday actions affect and and hurt people who are homeless because they are really treated differently in an extreme level because i was treated differently and i don't even look a fraction of people who have been chronically homeless for so long so it was it was such an experience and a shift and it was humbling in a different way and i have a different respect for the energy that they bring and contribute to this world concerning how they're mistreated every day. Like I have a whole different respect for them. What was it like to go back home? Oh, that was weird. I was doing weird stuff. They kept saying I kept doing Skid Row stuff. (laughs) So like one thing that happened, um, well, of course you don't have electricity, right? So I ended up getting electricity because that's the thing too that was really cute. It was probably the biggest sign of love. This guy named Fiji, I've known him since my first event. Um, He rewired a light pole so that I could have electricity in my tent. And it was the sweetest thing ever. But he did it at like three in the morning. So he's like, Ray, are you up? Are you up? And I'm like, I can be. He's like, I got you electricity. And I'm like, what? And he's like, I had had a whole extension cord and it was connected to the light bulb. He's like, so you can charge your phone. And I'm like, it was the sweetest thing I ever seen in my life. I was like crying because I'm like, your friends won't even take you to the airport. And he's like rewiring a light, you know? I just thought it was like such an act of love. So I had just electricity to charge my phone and, but nothing else. So when the sun went down, there were no lights. You're really in the dark. So we had literally flashlights. And going back, there were like the first couple of days, I didn't turn the lights on, but I didn't I didn't think about it. Mm-hmm. Literally. So um, Venus, one of our um, coordinators, she was like, the lights are off in here. Like I was literally with my flashlight on my phone reading and writing something. <laughs> and she's like, you can turn the lights on. And I didn't, I, it didn't even, I was so acclimated. I didn't even think about it. Because I was like, oh, it's night, so it's dark. And she was like, turns on the lights. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, things I had to rewire, that that was extreme for me. You know what I mean? Even, like, not walking like that. Like, that was even, like, meditative. And it was a whole different presence. Because then I had to get back into life in a different way. Because I went from really being. Like, I got to exist. And we existed and we survived. And our, our needs were met in a different way. So that part was um, very, very different. When I got in my bed, I was like crying (laughs) because I couldn't believe. And it hurt my feelings because all I could think of was so many people who are elderly, who have so many health issues, for them to be sleeping on the concrete floor like that. And then for me to be in the bed, that was like, 
that was a hard one for me because I'm just like, I realize how much I have, you know? And even though I live simplistically, like I'm not, but I have so much in comparison that I was like, oh gosh, all of those things. I thought about all of it. Like even just having a bathroom in your place, you know, when you're on Skid Row, like you have to go to like little bathrooms, wait in line, take a number. Mm-hmm. It's just like we, like things that are just, it's so different. You just don't have a convenience in any way. You know, it's humbling. There's nothing that's convenient for you. If you need food, you might have to walk a couple blocks to ask somebody for a plate or mm-hmm. if they want to give it to you and might mistreat you in the process. Everywhere you go, you're having to interact with people to get your services because you have nothing. So that part is, it's different. There's, it's hard. It's so much work just to be homeless and have your needs met. It's, mm-hmm. it's tough. So I, I notice how much access we have and how convenient life is for us. It sounds like Miss Brenda was kind of your host on Skid Row. Yes. What is her story? Miss Brenda was um, put into foster care at five years old. And she was abused um, her entire time. When she was 18, they had told her, you can stay if you become the nanny. And so she never had a life outside of cleaning and cooking for the foster family. She always wanted them to to adopt her and take her in, and they didn't. And then the foster mom, when she passed away 12 years ago, the kids told her, well, you have to go to Skid Row. You were never our family, but she's been with them since she was five, and she's almost 70. So she went her whole life, doesn't know who her family is, never seen their pictures, never seen their, doesn't know her last name. She was taken away at five. And then she was abused the whole time. So she's been through so much and she's just a sweet woman. Like all she does is clean and sweep because that translated as love. She cleaned her whole life, like took care of them, became the maid instead of like the sibling mm-hmm. just to see, for them to love her. So she, that's her personality. Mm-hmm. I would wake up. In the middle of the night, she'd be sweeping. She'd be taking out the trash because that's her only way that she feels like she's contributing or she feels of value. And I have such a soft spot for her because she has my mom's energy. Mm-hmm. I, absolutely. I she I know she comes down and hugs me through her. I can feel it. It's, it's insane. My sister, I took my sister to meet her. She came to visit, and as soon as she hugged her, she was like, uh, yeah, why did I just feel her? Aww. And I was like, yeah, I think it's Mom. <laughs> 110%. It's it's kind of incredible. Yeah, I have a soft spot for her. I tell her I'm an adult orphan, and she never got adopted, so we kind of need each other. So I want to ask you about why you do the work that you do, what inspires you, how you wake up every day and, and go back, how you started doing all of this. So I guess what I'm really asking is tell us about your mom. Um, my mother created a space for me. And I always say that because sometimes I'm, I'm strong. And I used to tell my mom all the time, because she would always say she was super religious, even though I'm not religious, she would always have references. And she would always say, God won't put more on you than you can handle. And I used to always tell her, well, I think he's thinking too highly of me, because I'm, I deal with so much, I have so much weight. But within all the things I went through, the space she gave me allowed me to be knocked down in the world and stand back up and recharge. Like I felt like no matter what happened, I could be thrown, chewed up, spit out. The space she gave me, I could get back up and try again. And that started the whole, first of all, my own strength. And then it also gave me, because she didn't save me, she empowered me. And also her service, she was so giving to everyone. That's the one thing I I loved about her. She was giving, and she didn't live by 
telling you how to live or showing you the way. She just lived righteously. And that example was enough for me because you could feel it. You could feel the presence of something beyond. And I I knew that that she would be my teacher. She she would teach me everything I needed to know about life. And she inspired it. I didn't know. I didn't know that this is what I would do. I always knew I would be a super volunteer. I would always do my part because that was the words that was said to me. The moment I stopped tithing in church and I decided to start feeding people was the day I knew I would always do my part in life because that resonated with me. When she said do your part, it felt like I had a responsibility to contribute to society. And that was my expression of gratitude by being of service to everything that's existing as well. And so that is what inspired and brought this. But her creating a space, and that space I didn't realize, like I knew, but it wasn't until I went to Skid Row, my mother sent me there. Because I didn't know when I was getting my visions and my meditation, it was just her talking to me. And she specifically said to me on the 43rd day, um, I brought you here because Love is never lost because I thought I lost. You know, when you we lose people, we have to sometimes look at like, what is it that pains us? Is it our relationship with death? Is it? And because to me, it wasn't that because I feel her. It was like what was hurting, but I felt like I had lost a space that I could only get through her existence, living. And so my mother told me the last day, love is never lost; it's only redirected. You didn't lose your space with me. I gave you a bigger one here, and that. <laughs> It was Aww. waterworks. I yeah. was, you know me. Yeah. I was, was out of here. I was gone. I was like emo in the corner crying. And they're like, what's going on with her? And I'm just like, I'm sorry. Just give me a second. Having a moment with my mom. I, oh, my God. And she had said to me, look around. And as I was saying, it was such a beautiful moment. It was my last day there. Everyone from Skid Row that we had been with within the 43 days had all come to the block we had stayed. So I'm seeing Miss Brenda slow dancing with my camera guy. One, like, one of the guys that we know, his name's Anthony. He's in the documentary. He's shooting pictures of them. And like <laughs> this, like all these moments, there's like some of the kids that are all foster kids. They're all super close now. They're like skateboard kids. You'll see them in it too because they skateboard all through Skid Row. They're all sitting in the tent together. And I was just crying because like that space, I'd seen it. It was the first time I have could physically see the space that I would always speak about and I didn't understand for me her that space was in her bed Mm -hmm. right it was in next in her bed having (laughs) snacks that was a space that was created but I had seen it on Skid Row and I was like oh my god I'm creating the same spaces that she gave me what will happen next because I know the space that she created for me which it, it it didn't need much and what I've been able to accomplish is beyond my own understanding but what I can do with an army of people in that space is like powerful. And I had that was the first time, the 43rd day, I had realized the power that that space holds. Mm-hmm. And that inspires me. Why wouldn't I? And I've been given the room, the floor so many times. Why wouldn't I talk about something that matters? Doing all this work, can you tell us a little bit about what your life looks like? Oh. What your what does your apartment look like? A when pantry. You're it seems like if there's like some type of zombie apocalypse, everyone will come stay with me because I have everything. Um, literally, so your apartment it, has become the pantry. Oh my god! Yeah. So our, my second bedroom, I've transferred, and we have storage too. Our storage mm-hmm. is to capacity, mm-hmm. um, and I had to even give up my meditation room for <laughs> for a another pantry. So my second bedroom looks like a baby Whole Foods. It literally, it has utility shelves aligned, the whole thing. The pantry is probably holding 20,000 products. 
at wow. least. Like, if you see it, it's like, this can't be real. And it's so organized, you kind of think I'm crazy because if you see how, like, everything's fades forward, it looks like you could just go shopping. It's insane. I had to... I brought a commercial fridge into my dining, like where my dining area is. There's now a second commercial fridge because my fridge wasn't big enough and I need to make sure we could store more. And there's like two, like literally I only have my room and half of my living room. I have a little nook in my living room that's definitely a space that has like plants and stuff. But then outside of that, it's like utility shelves, products, 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 (laughs) everything you could think of. Catering, you know, I have so many like, there's like a commercial rice maker that like makes like 400 cups of rice like it's ridiculous (laughs) it's just like all these big things it just it looks like dedication i think that anyone that actually has come to the it's it's the lunch on me place now now it's lunch on me it's like i'm just i'm just running out the room in the back because (laughs) lunch on me is taken over if you see the amount of things but what we're able to do and so we've been able to also run um a food bank out of the the second bedroom because we have people that also um, whether they have health challenges that want to eat healthy that don't have access so it's not just the homeless and foster youth one in six people in America live in a food insecure home mm-hmm. like people aren't a lot of people can't even feed themselves they don't have enough like living is so expensive and if people are are, are living off of minimum wage a lot of people can't provide for themselves so we also um offer meals to people who are going through that and especially with health challenges Mm -hmm. because we feel like a healthy lifestyle having that can help like recovery or whatever they're dealing with and so we've created this like weekly pantry where people come and we we create food and also for like moms like single moms and things like that we Mm -hmm. give out food because we want everyone to have healthy food it started with like extreme conditions but for me, I would love to give everyone access to that. Mm-hmm. That's the most important to me. So now it's crazy. And it it shows. You you would never even question how many people we're feeding if you see the amount of food we have. <laughs> it's just like insane. It's it's insane. And we still have to purchase food, right? So 70% of our food is donated. 30% is purchased because we have to make full meals. So sometimes it's other ingredients. You know, mm-hmm. when we're working with chefs, we'll tell them, okay, we have all of these things. We can, we're, we can get three more things to add to it. What do you want us to get? And that's what we've been doing. So it's kind of cool that 70% of our food is redirected. What's up next for Lunch on Me? Our next focus, I'm so excited about this because I'm, I just cannot wait to create opportunities and jobs um, for the people who are ready, right, that have, have gone through the healing and who are ready for that next step, that support. Um, it, it will be a yoga studio coffee shop. And the yoga studio coffee shop, um, we're going to have a barista program so that people can learn and get into the coffee industry. And we're going to teach them that. And then we're also going to do yoga certifications. So if people from Skid Row want to become yogis, people have gone to our yoga classes and love it, then we're giving them an opportunity to be a part of the wellness world in that way. So that's what I'm really excited about is for us to have our own space. Sounds and it, the my favorite part is we are going to hire people that live in tents. No one is doing that because everyone's focused on an address. Mm-hmm. And we'll have a shower there mm-hmm. where they can get ready for work. And our focus is to get people off the streets, not into government programs because that's failed us. It's to get people independent and 
in their careers and where they want to be and and to to discover that and skill and job training and I think the coffee industry and wellness would be amazing and eventually get into roasting with them and just I I want to create jobs and and wellness and things that they would love to do and they've shown a lot of interest in these things because of food and even healthy food and having like chef programs and things like that like we'll have a deli Mm -hmm. Um, that is our focus is for lunch on me to have a home that's not mine (laughs) (laughs) if everybody out there listening now wants to get involved wants to do something immediately um, wants to contribute resources in some way be those time or energy or love or financial resources Mm -hmm. what do you recommend where would you want people to put those resources well first i would say go to our website so you could see all the great things we're doing lunchonme.org um pledge the one thing we've asked from everyone is if everyone would pledge just ten dollars a month we would be funded grassroots wise we would have the support we need that's all we're asking we're asking for ten dollars a month we don't want I mean, now, if you have a million dollars to donate, we will gladly take it. <laughs> but specifically, it's it's about micro gestures to us. My biggest focus is it's not about doing your part once. It's about consistently doing it. Pledge $10 a month um, to our efforts, and that helps us scale what we're doing. And contributing, if you can show up, if you can come to L.A. and show up, show up. But if you can't. Buy merch from us. Like, support what we're doing. We're grassroots. We're doing all of this ourselves. Get involved. And I feel like every single person can afford $10. That's two coffees, okay? I'm always measuring things in coffee. I'm like, how many coffees is that? So sacrifice two coffees instead of getting the two that you would normally get. Give it to Lunch on Me so that we're able to to gauge this and, and really build our support because we need the wellness community. Um, if you're a yogi, again, once we have our space, Every single yogi, anyone that's in wellness, I would say, come host a class. Come teach, you know, the people from Skid Row, like these things. Like, we'll have a space. And that's the biggest thing, too, is the space would not only be for people on Skid Row, but it brings people in the wellness community that can share their gifts and give everyone access to it. You know, we want to have it where all of our employees, all of the all of the classes are free, and then we want to create a donation-based class where not everyone can afford a $30 yoga class, but everyone should be able to go. If they have a dollar, okay, we'll take it. That's fine. Yeah. Like, we just want to create that type of community where everyone can do it. And if you can help and contribute, great. If you can't, that's okay, too. You're still invited. And that's the space we want to create. And I don't think there is a space like that in L.A. where people from Skid Row and people from Beverly Hills can go. Like, yeah. that's what we want to create and then we want to create jobs and opportunities because I want every single person that's overlooked and it's invisible because there's something in them that just hasn't been nurtured and activated and that's what we want to do is create our lunch on me cafe Laria, <laughs> you're a pretty incredible person and you extend yourself in so many ways to so many people yeah how do you take care of yourself I come visit my best friend. <laughs> Literally, she recharges me, even though she's like sleep on the corner. She's she, here today. Though. She is here today. <laughs> yes. Um, I I recharge myself first of all my spiritual practices. Like there's just my disciplines. I'm I feel like my biggest gift is how disciplined I am because I I that's important to me is creating balance and and space for myself. Um, and spending time with my best friend, my family, my siblings. Like I definitely. Um, 
love being around my closest family. Like I spend time in that way. I balance it that way. And I've gotten better with it. When I first started, I wasn't as balanced in creating that space. But I realized um, in order to be effective and to do what I'm doing, I have to create balance and take care of myself as well. Because it's so easy to like get caught up and I have to get to a place. And my other happy place is the gym. Like my, I don't know, like for me, Latin <laughs> cardio makes me happy. <laughs> like I, that makes me so happy. I can sweat all of the stress away. So that that helps me. Um, and then art. I think the, the the most important part is like I'm in love with my process and what I do. Every day, whether I'm creating something in art, I'm designing, or I'm making a pretty plate for someone on Skid Row, just to just to create beauty in any area of my life, that to me is like my expression, like my true expression of myself, and there's no more I could ever have wanted or asked for. So I just show up, figure out what life's going to be. I don't know what it's going to be tomorrow, but I literally just show up, and I just expect miracles every day and for things to be magical, and it does, and that's it, and then I'm happy, and then I go to sleep and do it all over again. That's literally like I wake up on 100, like, hey, let's go. Life, okay, we woke up. We have another day. What do we have What do we have left? And that's it, and I just think that because of the work I'm doing, it's, it's created some, I just don't know. I'm, like, so happy. I just feel so full inside because I'm doing so much for so many, and it's like, you can feel it. We're all connected. And the amount of goodness you put out in the world, you can feel that vibration. It lifts your vibration, but it's also connected to you. And I feel that. And it's just, it's it's my happy place. <laughs> what keeps you up at night? Oh, my gosh. Um, what keeps me up at night is um, our fundraisers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Designing. Um, what keeps me up at night is the idea that the problem isn't fixed and there's always work to be done. And there's always facilitating to do and connections to make with people. Like, I think collaborations are so important. So what keeps me up at night is who don't I know where we can create a bridge and make more room for more people to grow and help? And how do we um, expand in that way? Those things or how can I creatively convey like what we're doing or photo editing you know I do a lot of our content too yeah. so I shoot a lot of the stuff so I'm editing every day I'm I just I'm doing a lot <laughs> and so but but when I see their faces and I see the happiness and I see some of the things that it's been said to me and the words that have been given to me it fuels me it I don't I don't know I'm one of those people that don't require a lot of sleep mm-hmm. I can sleep about five hours and be good that's like my golden amount of time give me five hours I'm in there I don't need more more make me feel weird I'm not used to that so um I use most of my day I'm up 20 hours out of the day so (laughs) it's like and I don't feel tired or drained I feel full not from sleep I feel it from service and 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 the exchange with people I don't know there's like some type of like energetic high that happens that Mm -hmm. I don't feel like but I think I'm also using my whole life like I'm living it all like every minute I'm like (laughs) using every bit of it so I think that's what fuels me and keeps me up and then excited I'm always excited for what's next like I think I think the universe is lit (laughs) like I think there's so many cool things that happen that I wait for those magical moments like I always have things happen and they're so like literal and signs and just magic that I'm just always looking for it waiting for it and so it makes me happy I get really excited like I wake up smiling like happy like oh here we go again I was gonna ask what wakes you up in the morning but I think that you pretty much just answered <laughs> no <that>. I do <laughs> like I think my life is even more interesting than my dreams I think my dreams are cool they're a little boring sometimes they're like lectures but <laughs> I feel like I feel like my ancestors are like lecturing to me in my dreams but like in the daytime I just feel it I just see magic it's just it's really cool I can't explain it until you live it, but I just, yeah, it keeps me up. I have late nights and early mornings. 
One last question. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Oh, my gosh. Um, The advice I would give my 20-year-old self, for one, would be um, because you have a heart of gold, don't protect it like it's fragile. It's more resilient than you think. Mm-hmm. So don't hold, don't don't withhold it from people because you think it's fragile and it'll break. And I think that I would always tell my twenty year old self, you don't give your heart enough credit. It's way stronger than you protect it to to think it's not. I would definitely, yeah, you you don't give your heart enough credit. You can take it. You're okay. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing everything. Thank you for coming on the My Medi Green podcast today. Yes, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.